And you can turn your Bibles to the book of James. We're in a series in the book of James. James is uh, made up, or James is writing to a group of churches made up of Jewish Christians, and he's writing about how do we live out the Christian faith. James wants us to know that real faith is visible faith. What that means is that our, our faith is meant to be seen in how we live and in how we interact with others in this world. The Bible has no category uh, for some sort of closet Christianity. Our faith is not a practice uh, or, or not a private matter that we only practice within the confines of our, of our house or within a church gathering like this. Uh, the Bible tells us that God has saved us, he has changed us, he has transformed us so that we would be a light in this world. And we have been saved so that we would then live differently. Uh, and what we're going to see today is by our words and our actions, we reveal the kingdom of God. We reveal uh, God's rule in this world. This means that when the world looks at the church, when they look at you, when they look at me, when they look at us, are gathering together, the church is looking at what, it, or the world is looking at what it means to live and enjoy the rule of God. And so... Uh, as Christians, everything that we do is meant to be a testimony to this world of the saving grace of God in our life. And so uh, that is what James is writing about. Today, we're going to begin looking at, at maturity and godly wisdom and what he has to say about that. And so I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand. We are going to be in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Here at Timberline, we stand at the reading of God's Word, we do this because God's Word comes uh, inspired by the Spirit for the purpose of correcting, for teaching, for exhortation, that we would be trained in every work of righteousness. Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let me pray. Our Father, we come to you now, and Lord, we just ask that your Spirit would work through this text in our lives. Lord, you are giving us a picture of what it looks like to grow in our faith. And I pray today that there would be a conviction of sin in areas that we need to repent in. But that, Lord, there would also be an encouragement that we have by your Spirit of how you are growing us, of what it looks like to be made more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. I pray that we as a church, that every family here, every husband, every mother, that we'd be characterized 
by godly wisdom. I pray for our students, our children, our high schoolers, our junior hires, that they would be characterized by this godly wisdom that we're looking at. That our knowledge of you, our understanding of you, would truly permeate into every single action, thought, and emotion that we have. God, may we truly understand this text, that we would shine as lights in this world. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so last week was your favorite sermon, and in chapter 3, we looked at the tongue, right? Uh, and we saw that there were certain people, in chapter 3, verse 1, there were certain people who were trying to make their way into teaching positions in the church. They thought that they were wise, and they were able to instruct others. But in verse 2, James caution people about moving too quickly into these type of positions of authority by reminding them those who teach will be judged with greater strictness and in our text today james wants us to understand what it looks like to be wise he wants us to understand what it means to be mature in our faith and he does this not just so we know who should have a teaching position but really so that he knows what God is doing in every single one of our hearts. If you are here as a believer, this passage is telling us what it looks like to grow in our faith. Not just so that we would teach, but so that we understand how the Spirit is working within us. And so, in verse 13, James asked the question, Who is wise and understanding among you? The word wise means clever, it means skillful, having discernment. The word understanding means expert or someone who has learned. So he's referring to those who have a knowledge of God and are able to communicate that. And also, again, going back to those who are mature in Christ, growing in their knowledge and wisdom. So I just ask you, just kind of in the beginning of this, are you wise? It was kind of a, how do I want to answer that? We have an honest, humble answer. Would you consider yourself a mature Christian? <laughs> All right, let's, let's pray. Call this thing, call this thing good. Savannah, you're, you want to come up here and help me? You know, you actually would, wouldn't you? <laughs> Your parents aren't even in here at this time. Um, wisdom has often been defined uh, as like knowledge applied. Perhaps you've heard that in and I think that's very applicable to what James is doing here. James wants us to know what it looks like for our knowledge of God. For us to say, I know who God is. What does that mean, lived out? This is very similar to what is in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is saying, okay, if you have a knowledge of God, or as Proverbs will say, a fear of God, a right knowing and understanding of who God is, then you will rightly live out your life under the rule of God. And so that's what James wants us to know. If we know who God is, what does that mean for that to affect our actions, our thoughts, our emotions, and how we interact with other people? And so James says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So good conduct refers to our lifestyle. So, so James is saying, in everything that you do, we are to produce good works. 
But notice it's not just these works, but it's these works connected to this heart of wisdom. So basically, James says, godly wisdom is revealed through a life of good works and a heart of humility. So they're both. They're not either or, they're both. It's good works with a heart of humility. And so what does that look like? And that's, that's what James is going to do for us. So first what he's going to do is he's going to paint a picture of what worldly wisdom looks like. He's going to describe it. He's going to tell us where it comes from and what its result is. And then he's going to come to godly wisdom. He's going to describe it, where does it come from, and what is the result. So we'll start with worldly wisdom. <clears throat> he gives us a description, and we see this in verse 14. And he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So bitter jealousy refers to desiring things that you do not actually possess. That This could refer to status. It could refer to possessions, finances, authority, prestige, respect. You could just keep going with that list. Selfish ambition refers to having a strong desire for personal success, achieving these things without any moral inhibitions. <clears throat> What this means is that you'll do whatever it takes to get what you want. Means are not really that important. Ends is what matters. So that's, that's what James is communicating here. The person, this might be a person that works hard uh, at the expense of spending time with their family in order to gain these, um, this status, this wealth, these possessions, whatever his desired outcome is. <clears throat> It also may mean they take shortcuts. They will cheat and take credit for work that they did not really do. They will slander and step on others in order to move forward. They do, they do not work actually out of a concern for others or for the good of others, but are rather consumed with self-promotion and self-satisfaction. Now, this does not mean they don't do great works. There can be people in this world who do great charitable works, can't there? And they are not believers, what we understand is that even there, within their heart, their desire in doing all these things is for the satisfaction that it brings, for the worth that it, that it attributes to their, themselves, to be able to see how they have benefited society, how they have contributed to the very good of society. You see, worldly wisdom operates from the understanding you are what you do. Do you understand? You are what you do. Meaning, your worth comes from your accomplishments. The more I accomplish, the more I do, the more worth that I have. This is the lie that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve, the first two humans that are created, representatives of all of humanity. They are precious and they're valuable in the very sight of God because they are made in his image. And yet Satan says, you could be more. Your worth does not come in the fact that you are made in God's image. Your worth comes in that you could achieve more if you do this. Take the apple, or whatever fruit you want it to be. Take your apple, and then become who you truly can be. You see the lie? It's don't, do not, don't trust in who God has made you to be. You can be more through your actions. This is the same lie we see lived out in the New Testament. Remember the Pharisees. 
They hated Jesus. And in John chapter 11, it's this crazy passage. You should go read John 11 later. So John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It's an incredible chapter. It's a chapter that no matter who you are, we ought to be celebrating, right? I mean, a guy raises someone from the dead, pretty awesome. And then come the Pharisees, and we see how they respond. And and, and notice what they say. If we let him go on like this, you know, raising people from the dead and doing really awesome things, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come, take away both our place and our nation. So what do they do? They say, we should kill him. So he raises people from the dead, and in their response is, he's going to totally be more popular for us, and it's going to threaten our positions and our status, who we are, our value, and our worth. Therefore, we need to protect those things and get rid of him. This lie permeates our society. You are what you do. I mean, think about it. Many moms have joined the workplace today, not because their family needs additional income, some do, but many have done it simply because they feel that there is no worth in being at home. Being a stay-at-home mom, taking care of children, what value is that? I'm not accomplishing anything, I'm not achieving anything, I'm not pushing anything forward in the marketplace. This has no value, at least that is what many moms think. Many men will work at the expense of their families thinking, I mean, if only I can move up the corporate ladder, if only I can move in, in this more desirable location, that's where we're, real worth will come. And they'll lie to themselves. They do it for the good of their families. We know people like this. Sometimes there, you might be here like this. We believe if we have more Facebook likes or comments, then surely we have greater worth. In the church, in the church here, we can think that our importance is based upon, am I a deacon? Am I an elder? Am I up on stage? Am I up on stage preaching or teaching or singing? Or am I teaching in various classrooms? But according to this end, verse 14, according to this, verse 14 says, to boast in this way of thinking is to be false to the truth, meaning it's not real wisdom. If that's what you think wisdom is, James is saying, it's not real. You're boasting in something that is completely and absolutely false. It's not true. And so James then tells us, but where does this wisdom come from? Verse 15, we read, it doesn't come from above, meaning from God, but rather James uses three words to describe the origin of this wisdom. Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James wants us to understand this worldly wisdom has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Now, it's interesting he uses the word demonic. If you're here, we were in James chapter 2 a couple weeks ago. And if you just turn over, in James chapter 2 verse 19, when James is talking about the importance of faith and how our faith produces good works, he says... In chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. That's great. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So his, his whole point is, look, the, the demons know a lot of things about God, but that doesn't mean they have saving faith. Saving faith is more than just knowledge. And now here, James refers to demons again, and it, it seems like he's saying, you know, you, you guys might have a lot of knowledge. You guys might even be like the Pharisees and have the entire Old Testament memorized. Your sword drills are amazing. You might have a large online following. 
You might have an important position. And he's saying, but, but none of that in here equates to godly wisdom. Worldly success is not the same as godly maturity in the kingdom of God. And thinking even military, you, you might have authority over 500 soldiers in the military. But the reality is you might not have the maturity needed to be an usher here in this room. And it's important for us to think like that. Now, you might be sitting here going, now, hold on. That seems to be pressing it a little far. Surely, if you can do all those things, you, you could certainly have some maturity and have some respect and, and some authority within the church. Well, I, I, think, I think James anticipates us saying that. And so, next he goes, so what does it happen if we, if we begin to use worldly principles within the church? What if we use worldly principles as the means of maturity and success here in the church? What, what could happen with that? And the answer is in verse 16, under the results. There will be disorder in every vile practice. And what that means is there will just be lots and lots of divisions and pains and sins that will occur. Chaos will occur. In fact, if you go to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where you read about the seven churches... All of those churches are getting a little friendly with the world. And that's where the problems come from. It's not the problems outside they are necessarily affecting them, although a couple it is. But primarily, it's the problems within the church that they're actually bringing the world right in. And in fact, later in chapter 4, James is going to address this. Notice he says in chapter 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that you have these passions and at war within you? In fact, if you go down just a little bit farther into chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's saying, like, when you become more like the world, you're going to have more and more divisions and more problems because you're operating from this selfish ambition and this bitter jealousy. Fights are breaking out within the church that James is talking to because people are wanting to have their way. It's been said the greatest threat to the church doesn't come from without, but it's from within. It's when the church begins to act like the world, that gossip, that slander, that division occur. I mean, you know, I know, throughout church history, there's been an enormous amount of church splits. I mean, churches have divided, churches have closed their doors. And it's so often because people are fighting over their positions and wanting to have their way worldly wisdom it can be like a weed when it pops up in the garden you need to pull it fast because what happens if you don't pull the weed quick you get more more and more it begins to spread and james is wanting each member of his church and i think he's just wanting us to question and to 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 think about our own hearts at this moment our own motivations and he's wanting us just to say why do i want to serve why should why should i want or why, why do you want to be, to teach or be in charge of a ministry? Why would you, we, we had an annual meeting last week, right? Why would we vote yes or vote no for something? Why do you want to be on stage? Why do you believe your voice matters? Why do you get upset about things? Are you concerned with the good of others? Or are you wanting your own way? So James, what he's done, he's just painted this really dark picture of worldly wisdom. And he says, okay, this is not what godly wisdom is. This is not what maturity is. But I want to paint this picture, James says, so that now we can see the, the greater beauty 
of godly wisdom, of what truly Christ is working in us. And so that's what we're going to now look at. And he's first going to describe what godly wisdom, and he does that starting in verse 17. And James gives us eight words. And we're going to talk through each of these words. And, and I just want to give you just kind of short definitions as we go through them. Feel free to, to write as we make our way through. Um, but I want you to realize each of these words, they inform our actions and they describe the humility of the believer. So these words are describing what it's going to be, what, the actions that we're going to do, and our heart as we do them. So we start with the word pure. This word comes from the same word as holy. It means not tainted. It's not hypocritical. It's not two-faced. What you see is what you get. In fact, this word stands at the beginning of the list, and most commentators say it stands at the beginning of the list because it probably characterizes everything else about godly wisdom. First thing, it's just pure. It's, It's holy. It's devoted to God. And then we have these these next three words, peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. And these are all going to communicate a similar thought here. Peaceable means not combative. We don't want to fight. In fact, we're we're against fighting. Gentle. We're not about asserting our own will. It means that we're actually willing to be wronged. This is the person who though he has been wrong, forgoes his right to be right. Do you do that? You know you're right. You know the other person's wrong. The, the result doesn't really matter, you know. But, but do we want them to know that we're right? Eh. I mean, do, they need to know that their idea, I mean, it'll work, but it's not as good as my idea. Do you feel the need the justice, you know, just the right to just kind of gently slip it in. You know I was right. Um, Titus verse 3, title, Titus chapter 3 verse 2, Paul says, we are to speak evil of no one. We're to avoid quarreling. We're to be gentle. We're to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So often we, cr- we create quarrels because, because we just want to be right. But we're not about being gentle. And then he says we're to be open to reason. This is the person who does not fight for their own way. They're, they're willing to yield to others when theological and moral principles are not involved. So there are... There are lines that we draw, right? There are lines that we would say, um, you know, within the gospel, we believe we're saved by grace. We believe in a Trinitarian God. We go through a whole bunch of things. And if someone was to to say, you know, I actually don't believe in these things, and I don't think this is right. We're going to draw a line, and we are going to probably quarrel over it. We're not going to be open to reason on that. But some of us like to draw a line on every single matter. Do you know what I mean? Everything you need to understand and everything we are going to communicate that really my way is the right way. So peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Just notice how these are others focused. 
They're about placing the need of the other person. They're about valuing them, valuing their thoughts, their opinions, because they're made in the image of God. It's not about fighting for my way. It's how do I honor this person? If we do their way or my way, sure, mine might have been more efficient, but it doesn't really matter, so it's okay if we do theirs. Now, you might say, it sounds like James is calling us to be a doormat. And so we're, we're actually going to come back to that later, because there's a lot of Christians, I think, who, when they read Scripture, they're going, so we're just supposed to, like, bend over and just let people walk all over us? Is, is that what we're supposed to do? No, but we'll, we'll come back to that. The next two, full of mercy and good fruit, th- these are, these are kind of together also. In chapter 2, James reminded us that God has given us mercy in Jesus Christ. And so all throughout chapter 2, James is saying we ought to be eager in showing mercy to others. The gospel comes to us as an act of mercy. People who are hurting, that's you and I because of sin. God comes and saves us. And so James is saying, We actually have a mind set for those people. We prioritize those people in the sense we want to come meet their needs. We see people are hurting, the alien, the orphan, the widow, the poor, and we're bent on helping them because we want to value them because they're made in the image of God. And we do good fruit. This goes back to everything, really, James has been talking about in the letter. Remember, real faith is visible faith. Paul, throughout his letters, he talks about the need for us to continually produce good fruit in romans 12 10 paul will say this love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor so he's like just have a competition (laughs) who can out who can show more honor to to more people and that's that's the way that he says we're to have fruit we're to love one another we're to be zealous to do good to meet one another's needs you see godly wisdom compels us to love one another. As we grow in our maturity, as we grow in our understanding of Jesus Christ, we're growing in our love for other people. So if you want to say, am I growing in maturity? Are you growing for your spouse, in love for your spouse? Are you growing in love for your children? Are you growing in gentleness for them? Are you growing in your love for the church, your desire to be with people, to meet their needs, to self-sacrifice your own wants and desires? The next two also go together, impartial and sincere. Impartial means undivided loyalty, not wavering between convictions. Sincere means we're genuine. Again, both of these kind of communicate what we talked about earlier. What you see is what you get. You see, worldly wisdom is two-faced. It acts one way in public, but but it has these secretive motives. But godly wisdom is pure. It's impartial. It's sincere. It desires to see the best in others. It's not easily offended, and it does not hold grudges. It's easy. It's ready to forgive. It's humble, and it seeks to. It, it desires to seek the good of others. It chooses to give others the benefit of the doubt rather than be divisive. Do you do that? When someone says something that appears wrong, Are you quick to be offended, or do you give grace at that moment and say, you know what, they probably didn't mean for it to come out that way? Or do you kind of feel the need to let them know exactly how they said that and that it actually was offensive? We are in a very hypersensitive culture now. That is how um, our culture responds. That is what our kids in school are learning. 
to be hypersensitive. But here, because of godly wisdom, we give grace. We're not looking at creating fights. We're looking at how do we create unity? How do we have love with one another? Godly wisdom means that we serve one another because we actually love them. We're not trying to get something out of people. So often, uh, people think, especially in this world, what angle do you have? Why are you doing this? What are you wanting in return? But as Christians, our goal, our hope should be we simply want to love. We want to show the person of Christ in our actions and in our thoughts. Godly wisdom means that our yes is yes, our no is no. What we say actually means something. Godly wisdom does not try to manipulate circumstances and does not try to make sure the spotlight always shines on us. Godly wisdom sacrifices its desire for others. Now, in one sense, we might look at this list and go, man, this is, this, I mean, can any of us be like this? And yes, this is very much what the Spirit is working in you and in me right now as believers. And as we grow, slowly and slowly, we're being sculpted, we're being molded into this image. Now, now where does this godly wisdom come from? Well, in verse 16, we see that worldly wisdom doesn't come from above. And then in verse 17, we see that godly wisdom does come from above. So what does it mean, this above thing? Well, it, it's referring to, to God. And his rule. Remember, as, as the believers, as the church, we are to represent, we are to display the rule of God, the kingdom of God in this world. So the wisdom we're reading about, it is foreign in this world. This means that, that, that when our kids, whether in elementary school or junior high and high school, they're not going to come across this wisdom there. They're going to gather this from the church from God's word, and within the families. But what James, James is giving a picture here of God's kingdom. And James is calling us to put others' needs before our own. He's calling us to count others as more significant than ourselves. Now, just imagine, what would it look like if your family, if you, just as an individual at work, or we, as a church, what would happen if this List This godly wisdom is what truly characterized our interactions. What if we were a people who truly are pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere? Have you seen an organization like that? Like you're not going to see it in the world. It's foreign there. You're not going to see an organization or a family or any type of structure. This is God's kingdom. This is what the church is here on earth to display. This is what it means when Jesus says we're to be a light in this world. What does that look like? It means we have this wisdom that this knowledge of God, that he is in control of all things, saves us by his grace and mercy, loves us, gives us his spirit to live in us so that we would be at peace with one another, we would have love with one another. This is what it means to live that out. This wisdom is exclusive to the church. Every action that we take as a believer is meant back to point back to our glorious King Jesus Christ. Now, we don't do this perfectly, right? So let's, let's not pretend that, that 
this is, you know, just a utopian type picture, and that's what James is expecting. No, he knows that we're going to sin. But even in our repentance, we can begin to display this peaceable and gentle behavior. Um, Now, why do we actually live this way? I want to read a passage from from what Paul writes to the church of Philippi. And I just want you to think about what Paul says and then what James says. So this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Does that sound kind of familiar? Kind of a summary in many ways of what James is saying? Now notice. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul is is literally calling us to live just like James is calling us to live. And notice why we live this way. Verse 5 of Philippians, Paul says, we have been given the mind of Christ. You see, this godly wisdom that James is describing is nothing more than the mind of Christ. You see, the purpose of our salvation, according to like Romans 8, 29, is that we have been saved so we'd be conformed into the image of Jesus. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, this is what John says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, what? We shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The whole point of salvation is that God would save us, not leave us like we were, but change us and transform us that we be made into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, so that every thought, every action, everything that we do would would represent who? Christ. So when when James says godly maturity and he gives us these eight qualities and then we read in, in Paul about not having selfish ambition and counting others more significant than ourselves, we see that even though they're writing at different time periods and even though uh, yeah, different time periods, they're writing very much about the same goal, becoming like Christ. Maturity in Christ is growing in the mind of Christ that we've been given as believers. So we are to, as we mature, we become like Christ. Our actions, our thoughts are to be like Christ. The way we love one another is to be like Christ. Husbands, the way you love your wife is to be as Christ loves you. Wives, the way you love your husbands is the way Christ has loved you. The way we love one another and submit to one another is the way Christ has come and loved and submitted to the Father. Everything about the way we interact with one another is to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what happens if we do this, though? Well, James tells us in verse 18. Verse 18, we read, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, the word righteous most likely does not refer to our status before God. Um, If you remember, back at the end of verse 16, James says, the result of worldly wisdom is that it produces every vile practice. So he's talking about evil deeds. And so now he says the result of 
This godly wisdom does what? Produces righteous actions. And not just righteous actions, but a, a harvest of righteousness, meaning the actions that we're doing with the faith that we have in Christ is actually growing and producing so much more than we could even imagine, producing a harvest of righteousness. Godly wisdom, godly wisdom produces good fruit, righteous actions. Godly wisdom increases our love and our joy. So that when, we, when we gather here, one of the reasons this is such a special time is that we're gathering with one mindset. We're gathering as believers, saved by grace, united by Christ, with His Spirit in us. We're not like a, it's not like we have a golf course membership here where, you know, we come because we like golf. We have something so much deeper than that. It holds us together by the very blood of Christ that Paul actually says we become new creations. We're not even like we were <clears throat> as unbelievers, but we've been made new. So when we gather, there is something special about this. We're gathering as those who have been united in the same family, citizens of the same kingdom, all moving towards the same goal, Christ, that we would truly love one another. So, so when we say that we shine brightly together, that's no understatement. Together, when we're like this, we are, are shining forth the very love of Christ. And there is a power within the fellowship that we have together. <clears throat> that when we do gather, and we encourage, and we even you know, have that time of greeting, which is really just like this foretaste of hopefully so much other relationships that take place outside this room. Those are times that we're actually encouraging each other. And when we encourage each other, it's different than when your boss or your neighbor or just some unbeliever might encourage you. Because we're encouraging you at the deepest heart level. As a brother in Christ, as a sister in Christ, going to the same goal, being conformed into the image of Christ so that you and I would display the love of Christ to this world and that we would grow together in our joy of Christ. So there's a harvest of righteousness that occurs because of this, this wisdom in God. But I want to spend just the last few minutes, how do we grow in this godly wisdom? What does it look like? How do we do that? Okay, the goal is really Christ. So how do we become, we could say, more like Christ? How do we, how do we grow in this heart of humility that produces these works that love others because they're made in the image of God? Well, number one, I, I say we start with repentance. We, we have to realize that as we come to this list, that there's areas that we just very quickly and easily see that we fall short of, right? We're not perfect. We, we wrestle with sin on a daily basis. Remember, we have been saved from the bondage of sin, from the power of sin, but we will not be saved from the presence of sin until Christ returns. Meaning, we still wrestle with the effects of sin. We still wrestle with wanting our own way, right? There's times that I still, you know, want my wife to know that I think my way is best. Now she will say, I hardly ever do that. Right? Right, shakes her head nervously. Um, 
We still wrestle with this. But we're growing in this maturity. And so one of the first things we must do is just come to the understanding. And we, we sin. And so we need to repent. We need to repent to God. So I would just say, if there are areas in your life that you know that just as we go this, you're fighting for your own way. If you realize, man, I, I am easily offended. I, I'm not willing to be wronged. I don't really let love cover offenses. Let me ask you this. Are you holding a grudge against someone right now? Is there someone that you know you actually should go and ask for forgiveness from? And you're like, nope, not going to do it. Like, we got to start there. Where we just realize, look, I, I have sin in my heart, and, and we need to ask repentance, and we need to come straight to God with that. And so I, encourage, I, I know it's true. So there's no point in denying it. I, I could ask us to raise our hands, but there's no point in asking everyone to raise their hand just to raise their hand, right? Like, we all can ask repentance because of this text. It's leading us that way. To deny that is definitely to realize that there is sin in your heart. So God's leading us that way. So we need to come, and we're, we come before God. But then we need to realize this needs to be a regular practice between you and me, between one another. And this, especially with your, with your children here, parents, you need to make sure you're doing this with your spouse in front of your children. Don't be like the parents who kids grew up under, well, I never saw my parents ask forgiveness. I never saw them ever admit that they did something wrong. You will create grave problems in your kids if we do that. Let us be those parents who, in front of our kids, now you don't have to air everything out. You can use wisdom there. But let them see how we do seek reconciliation with one another. And come to your children asking repentance also. Because we wrong them greatly. In fact, one thing I, I have realized with my own kids, God has given them to me to reveal my sin and one thing I, I can say so far in my Christian life with, with great confidence is that my kids will know that their dad has come to them a multitude of times asking for repentance. Multitude of times. <laughs> Don't ask him how many. Just take, trust me, it's a lot. Um, and I, I actually love that because I want them to know I am a sinner just like them in need of God's grace, not just once in my life to bring me into the kingdom of God, but for every single day that's what we need so first we need repentance secondly i would say we need to trust in jesus our king are we trusting in him according to colossians colossians chapter 2 verse 3 we read jesus is the treasure chest of all wisdom do you know that it makes sense right maturity godly wisdom is actually becoming like christ so who is the mark? Who is, who is the one who defines wisdom? None other than Christ. And so if we're going to grow in this wisdom, where should we go? This is where we can do that interaction thing. Where should we go? To Christ. You could say Bible also. We'll let that answer. You know, that's, that's an acceptable answer. Because the Bible reveals who? Jesus Christ, our King. Listen, we, we, we hit a lot. In fact, application of every Sunday sermon, read the Bible. James 1, 22, read it and do it. Like, not just read, but and do it. Why? Because he is the treasure chest of all wisdom. And remember, we talked about this last week. 
the more we immerse ourselves in the Word of God, the more we're going to do what? We're going to start talking like God. Remember, we used that illustration. I, I learned French in high school, but never got really good. Always had a very heavy American accent. But what if we actually went to France and we studied there, we spent years there? What would happen to my accent? It would slowly begin to change, right, over time. Same thing happens in the Word of God. The more we come into the very Word of God, immersing ourselves, praying that God changes us and transforms us, looking at this passage, these eight words, and say, God, I want that. Making that a prayer that we walk through each and every single day. You know what's going to happen? We're going to become more and more like Christ. Because we're going to talk like him. We're going to think like him. We're going to act like him. We're going to respond like him. So we need to repent of our sin. We need to come and trust in our King Jesus. Number three, not two, three. We need to ask for wisdom. James chapter 1 verse 5. We actually started here weeks ago. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, what? Ask for it. And guess what? He gives it. Isn't that crazy? So here, James is saying, guys, this is what wisdom looks like. And I know all of us to some degree are going, that's impossible. And guess what? Earlier he says, ask for it. And God gives it. So is it an impossibility? Good. Robert knows the answer. Is it an impossibility? No. Why? Because God promises to do it. Why? Because you earn it? Because you deserve it? Because you prayed hard enough? No, because you're saved by grace. Your value does not come in doing. Your value is being made in the image of Christ. It's because you're a child of God. He hears you, he answers you, and he's going to lavish wisdom on you. But this is what I would say. Don't expect it to be like this waterfall just pouring on you and you're changed in an instant. It's the gradual process. Because in the gradual process, he's revealing our sins. He's revealing our idols. He's revealing the things that sometimes we love more than Christ. And so he doesn't just grow us and instantaneously flip the switch and we're mature. How great our spouses would love that, right? (laughs) And as parents, we would love that. As children, they would love it of their parents, right? But the process is important. Because God's growing us to better understand the power of sin and how we must daily fight it in our daily need for his grace. See, God's not the vending machine. We just come to, we pull the slot, we get it, and we walk away. No, he says, come to me and eat and thirst and drink from me every single day, and I will give you what you need. That's what it is to come and ask for wisdom. Lastly, we're to be a peacemaker. So earlier, I asked, is James calling us to be a doormat? Because you have probably said it, you have probably heard it. Where people, Christians, say, so you're telling me we just turn the other cheek? You're telling me it doesn't matter if people are wrong? You're telling me, you know, we just let people do what they want? I have no choice in the matter? No. A doormat is something passive. It has no choice. It cannot move, right? Is that at all what James is talking about? So let me give three things. I think it's three things. Let me give you a certain amount of things about peacemaking. <laughs> Just see how long the list becomes. Um, 
to begin, like just, let's just make sure a peacemaker is one who possesses godly wisdom. Come down to verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by what? By those who make good. Like three people are reading. All right, we'll go again. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We are to be peacemakers, all right? Godly wisdom is used by peacemakers. So a peacemaker is one who possesses this godly wisdom, meaning if you're here, you are to be a peacemaker if you're a child of God. Because the Spirit is in you, He's growing you in this maturity. Doesn't matter where you're at on the scale, this is where God is growing you. So let's talk about being a peacemaker. Number one, a peacemaker is willing to be offended. That's not a doormat. Because in our flesh, what do we want to do? In our flesh, I want to react. I want to tell you exactly what I think about your idea, your way, your thoughts, your actions. Right? But a peacemaker arms their mind with love and grace. This is not passive. This is very active. You are killing sin in order to be a peacemaker. Doormats are passive. Doormats don't do anything. Peacemakers are extremely active. They are very aware of their own heart and are very aware of rooting out those sins. So to be a peacemaker is to first make war on my own sinful flesh. I'm fighting sin in order that I would respond in love, in the love of Christ to others. So this is something that we must gird our minds for, strengthen our hearts for, prepare for as a soldier would prepare for battle. So number one, we're willing to be offended because because we love others. And we're preparing our hearts and our minds that way. Number two, a peacemaker helps others to give grace. Rather than pour gasoline on someone's anger when they're offended at someone's action, a peacemaker comes alongside and encourages them to respond in love. Peacemakers actively involve themselves in the lives of others so that together we would show grace. When one person is offended, we come alongside and say, you know, that's probably not how they meant it. You know what? It doesn't matter if that is how they meant it. Let's, let's give them grace. Let's try to understand where this person is. Let's pray for their heart. We're coming alongside others to shepherd them to love other people rather than pouring gasoline, fueling fires that create division and disunity. Does that make sense? So peacemakers, we're first aware of our own hearts. And we're rooting out the sin. Then we're, we're aware of others where divisions might occur. And we're coming alongside that they might remember the grace of Christ and show that to others. And lastly, a peacemaker helps um, a peacemakers, a peacemaker confronts those whose sin hurts themselves or others. Peacemakers don't stand by when others are living in sin, especially when that sin is going to hurt them or hurt other people. We do not say things like, I don't want to get involved. It's not my business. Those are words of a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper is a coward. Okay? A peacekeeper is a coward because they don't want to be involved. They don't actually love the other people, and they don't actually want whatever is happening to be turned on them. And so they're just going to keep status quo. We don't want to ruffle feathers. I don't want that person coming at me. I'll let them keep going down and sinning wherever that might take them. But as peacemakers, 
We're going to risk relationships in order to love one another, to confront sin so that they would repent and grow in the relationship. Go to the end of chapter 5. James chapter 5 says this. Verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. As a peacemaker, that is our heart, that we are going to people, that we are going to, to bring them the love of grace as gently, as lovingly as we can so that they would repent and experience that love of God. See, peacemakers know doormat. And if we forget that, remember Christ. Christ is the ultimate peacemaker who came from heaven to earth that he would die for yours and my sins so we could be saved and forgiven. The gospel is no doormat. And the person that Christ, the person that we are saved to become like, like Jesus, is no doormat. But we do love others when we count them greater than we count ourselves. So we're actually, we're going to take a break from the book of James as we go into this next month. We're going to kind of do an Advent series, a Christmas series. Um, but we're going to start back in January. And, and what I want to do is, is, I think it's actually timely and it works well. I, I want to I give us a holiday challenge. Now, I'm, I'm saying holiday challenge, but really I mean for the rest of your life. Uh, but, you know, holiday sa- challenge makes it sound like, oh, yes, yeah, like 30 days. I can do that. Um, I have no idea how many days are in December. How many days are in December? 31-day challenge, fine. Um, well, it starts now, so whatever that is. Uh, but as we go through the holiday season, what often happens with relationships? Like, they, they get a little dicey, right? Like, we got a lot of family in the house, a lot of friends in the house, and they didn't cook the turkey like you're supposed to cook the turkey. And, you know, like, there's just a million ways for us to get a little upset with one another. So I, I want to challenge us to memorize this text, chapter 3, verse 13 to 18, and pray it every day that we would grow in godly wisdom, that we'd become more like our King Jesus, that this text would permeate our every thought and our every action. I want us to pray that we'd be peacemakers. I want us to actively think, not only with us as a body, I mean, this Saturday, what's happening this Saturday? We're, we're doing like a decorating party here. And you know what? It's not going to be decorated like you want it or like I want it. And you know what? That's okay. And when you're decorating your house, things aren't going to go the way you want it. And when we're at school plays and everything else, things aren't going to go the way we want it. But let's prepare our minds. Let's strengthen our hearts that we would truly love one another. Let's pray this passage. Let's be that people that this text actually characterizes. And let's see what God does with it in this world. So I just want to challenge us. Let's take this passage Before we get to chapter 4, let's really pray that this becomes who we are. Let's pray that we become more like Christ, that we would have the mind of Christ. Because this is what the Spirit is doing in you if you're a believer. Let's pray, and then I'm going to ask the men to come forward as we pass out communion.